you would, take your Bible and turn again to the wonderful letter to the Hebrews in chapter 1. If you think about it, behind even our simplest daily decisions stands a belief that leads to a thought process that ultimately produces that decision. At the end of the day, our actions are dictated by our beliefs. What you believe dictates how you think, and what you think becomes the motivating factor for how you live. For example, how we dress is motivated by what we believe to be fashionable or modest or reasonable. And given the appropriate context, what is right for that context. How you define each of those terms reveals your beliefs about clothing and it results in what you actually wear. How we vote is motivated by our beliefs. We have a particular worldview that we believe to be true and it drives our thinking about each candidate before us and we vote depending upon that belief. But I think we all understand that some beliefs are more important than others. And we can determine the importance of a given belief by the significance of the consequences if we're wrong. For example, I might believe that the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year. Because of that belief, I will make certain decisions. I might buy a new Cowboys t-shirt. I might stock up on snacks for the big game. I might send out invitations, if I'm really brave, to my family and friends for a watch party. But if I'm wrong about that, again, this year, <laughs> the only consequence is a few wasted dollars and a couple of weeks of personal embarrassment among friends. But there are other beliefs that if we're wrong, carry with them devastating consequences, not only for this temporal life, but for eternity itself. A.W. Tozer is famous for having said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important Thing about us. What you believe about God will ultimately lead to how you think about God, and that will ultimately lead to how you live with reference to God. If you have attended our church for any time at all, then hopefully you are aware that one of our fundamental distinctives as a church is a high view of God. What we mean by that is that we're convinced that God is perfectly holy, all powerful, perfectly good, and completely sovereign over all things, including eternal salvation. A high view of God is essential if we are going to relate to God in the way that the scriptures demand. For example, a high view of God is essential for proper worship, for understanding the seriousness of sin, for the pursuit of personal holiness, for a right view of God's word. It's essential for a right view of the church and a right view of salvation and even a right understanding of our purpose and place in the world. What that means is that our view of God is of greater consequence than anything else we believe. And it means that there is nothing more practical and necessary for us to consider together this morning than what the Bible says we should believe about God. And it's because our view of God is so important that we've chosen to take on the monumental task of going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. Because as we've already seen, the author has really one primary objective in mind from the first word to the last, and that is to give us a right view of the Lord Jesus Christ, to give us a high view of the Lord Jesus Christ, to understand that he is superior to every other 
person or thing. And every week as we come back to the text, it reminds us again of the glories of Christ. And just when we think that we understand his true magnificence and his glory, the author of Hebrews has us look at him from yet another angle and we see his glory all over again as if for the first time. And that is the glorious task that lies before us this morning. We will experience the joy and privilege yet again of beholding the perfect Son of God as he's revealed on the pages of Scripture. And may it cause our love and appreciation of him to excel still more. As I've already said, the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And we've already studied that together in the first four verses of chapter 1. We saw that Christ is superior to the prophets and the revelation that they gave because he's the final word of God, the very son of God. And then in verse 5, last week we began to dissect the truth that Jesus is also superior to the angels. And as we've said, this is of crucial importance because it was through the mediation of angels that God brought the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so angels were rightly held in high esteem. But the author wants us to understand that compared to Christ, angels really have no glory at all because his glory surpasses them to such a great degree. This first section on the issue of Christ being superior to angels runs from verse 5 of chapter 1 through verse 14. And what we will see here are seven texts, seven Old Testament passages that reveal six proofs of Jesus' superiority to angels. Seven texts that reveal six proofs of Jesus' superiority to the angels. Last week we looked at the first two proofs together. Proof number one is that Jesus is the Son of God. And the author of Hebrews proved this to us from Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. That moved on then to a second proof, and that is that Jesus is deserving of worship. And that this comes from an argument uh, from the the Septuagint translation of either Psalm 97.7 or Deuteronomy 32.43. It's hard to tell exactly because they're so similar. They say basically the same thing. But understand that what we have in the book of Hebrews is the most thorough argument for the divinity of Christ in all of Scripture. Obviously, the fact of the divinity of Christ is taught in many places throughout the Bible, but no one highlights this truth more thoroughly or robustly than the author of Hebrews. And before we move forward, let me just give you a word of caution, because as we've said uh, last week and the week before, I don't think many of us question, I hope not, the, the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. And so because we already agree with where he's going, we can sort of check out and say, well, I'm already there, and so I can begin planning lunch or whatever it may be. But, but don't do that. Because if you do that, you will miss the privilege of seeing the glory of Christ from different angles. In fact, from different texts of Scripture than you've probably ever seen Christ before. Because he's going to pull them from the Old Testament over and over again. But as he begins here this morning, instead of giving us another proof that centers on Jesus himself... He's going to give us a proof that centers on who the angels are in contrast to who Jesus is. And this is really the only text that he points to in this section directly about angels, but it does help set up this contrast for his argument. And so this is proof number three. Angels are mere servants. Angels are mere servants. Let's read together 
Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, we're going to read down through verse 14 to get the whole section together and then back up specifically to our text this morning. Beginning in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now this morning, our text begins in verse 7 with this third proof about the angels being mere servants. Let's look together at verse 7 again. He says, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Notice here we're moving specifically, as I said, to the role of angels. What is the role of angels and how does that compare to the role of Christ? To do that, he quotes for us a, a, a passage from Psalm 104. Psalm 104. And as I've said before, understand, as he quotes these verses, he's doing so from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. So it's the Old Testament in Greek. That was the common Bible of the day. And so on occasion, as we look at the Greek Septuagint version of Scripture and compare it to our English, New American Standard, or whatever you have, there may be some differences. But understand, it's a faithful translation. It's a translation that Jesus himself quoted from. And we see it used here as the primary text, the Septuagint version of Psalm 104. Now before we dive into the exact quote that he gives us from Psalm 104, let me set the context for the psalm itself. In this psalm, he describes God's sovereignty over all creation. That's the point of Psalm 104. It shows how how God uses the different aspects of his creation for his own purposes and for his own glory. Now, with that in mind, let's read the first three verses that lead up to verse 4, which is our quote in Hebrew. So here's the background, Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain, He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. See how he goes through light and heaven as the sky, the the, the waters, 
the clouds, the wings of the wind. He's making these illustrations of how God uses all of creation for his own purposes. He's sovereign over creation. And then as we come to verse 4, this is one of those instances where it reads differently in our English translation than it does in the Septuagint. In the English version, in your Bible, it will read this way. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. But in the Septuagint version, the version of the Bible that the author of Hebrews is using as he makes this quote, it reads this way. Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now there's a whole lot we can say. There's a big rabbit hole we could go down uh, as to why the translations differ, but that would be to miss the point of the argument. I don't want to get away from the author's primary point. Let me just say that in Greek, the word for messenger and angel is the same word. And that's the reason we have these two different translations. And it's the context that determines whether it means messenger or angel. Obviously, the Septuagint takes it as angel. And so what I want you to understand here is really the, the point. And also understand this. When the New Testament authors, this is really important, when New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament, they are not ripping those verses out of their context and just using them as proof text however they want. Some people argue that. They say, well, well, well we can use the Bible flippantly and just pull out verses because obviously that's what the, the New Testament authors do. They just rip out verses and use them how they want. That's not true at all. In fact, the author of Hebrews is counting on the fact that we understand the context of Psalm 104 when he quotes this because it's the context that makes this verse powerful, that makes the whole point. Remember, the context is God uses all of his created things and beings for his purposes. And then when he quotes verse 4, he includes angels in that, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That is to say, he uses the angels as his servants. God uses the angels as his servants, just like he uses the sun as his servant and the wind and anything else on the face of the planet. So the author's point is directly tied to the context of Psalm 104. He's not ripping it out of context. The point that the author wants to make in Hebrews is that angels are created beings and God uses them as his servants and messengers. Just like the other aspects of God's created order, angels are mere servants designed to carry out his sovereign will. Now he refers to them here with elegant language as a flame of fire and as winds. And there's debate on exactly what he means there. It may be just an allusion to the fact that we see angels appear in all kinds of different forms uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, he also uses angels, gives them the ability to use some of the things of nature to do miraculous things in the Old Testament. Think of like 2 Kings 2.11 when Elijah is taken to heaven. It says, as they were going along, Elijah and Elisha, and talking... Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. This is just one example where God supernaturally uses the elements to accomplish his purposes. The angels could have been involved in that. All that to say is the point is not really the, the angels appearing as wind or fire. The point is they are his created beings who are his servants. And so as glorious and as magnificent as angels are, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, they are simply servants. And with that short little state, uh, statement about angels, he's going to build that as a contrast now 
against the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to a fourth proof that centers again now on Christ himself. Proof number four of Jesus' superiority to the angels is that Jesus is the righteous king. Jesus is the righteous king. Looking back at the text in verse 8, he says, but, this is going to be a contrast, so he said one thing in verse 7 of angels, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Now let's stop there for just a moment. What he's going to actually do here is give us two different descriptions of how Jesus is better than the angels. He's going to contrast verse 7 about the angels with two passages from the Old Testament. The first passage is Psalm 45. Now I have to give you some of the context of Psalm 45 for this to make sense. Psalm 45 is, is written about a king in Israel as a celebratory psalm for his marriage ceremony. It's celebrating a, a kingly wedding, a royal wedding. Now, we're not told what king is getting married in Psalm 45. He's never mentioned by name, which adds to some of the, the mystery around the, the content here. But it must have referred to one of the kings in the line of David because some of the language is clearly looking past just this king to the future Messiah, who was the ultimate king who would sit on the throne of David. Now, with that in mind, let's read the verses that lead up to our quote. This is Psalm 45, verses 1 to 5. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is pouring upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Now, clearly, some of those descriptions could, could be made of a human king, and, and they were at the time. But there are some interesting descriptions here that, that seem to clearly point beyond just this contemporary situation. First of all, notice at the end of verse 2, he says the word forever. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. He also refers to this king as O Mighty One. You'll notice in the NAS they chose to capitalize that title, O Mighty One, because it seems to be reminiscent of the, the term Mighty God in Isaiah 9:6. But those subtle clues are overshadowed by what he says next. And this is the quote that our author in Hebrews picks up on. And he says, Your throne, O God is forever and ever. That's verse 6 of Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Astonishing, astonishingly, the psalmist refers to this king as God. And so while this was a real psalm written about a real king, obviously the, the author was inspired by God to also look forward, to foreshadow a king that was to come, the Messiah who would be the ultimate king of kings. In fact, more than a king, he is God, the author says. And that's why his throne and his rule are said to be forever and ever. They are eternal. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
That shocking statement only makes sense if it's pointing forward to the Messiah as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And that makes this one of the clearest and most powerful biblical arguments for the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. Surprisingly, it's not found in the New Testament, but the Old, right here in Psalm 45. So we have to understand that the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ is not a doctrine confined to the New Testament. The New Testament authors didn't just make this up. The people, if they had been reading the Old Testament, should have been expecting a a divine son of God to take on flesh and to be the king of kings, the Messiah. Notice the description of this divine king as he goes on in Hebrews to quote more of this psalm. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. The scepter, of course, is a symbol of his rule, of the king's authority and his right to rule. And in this case, Christ not only has a scepter, but it's defined by righteousness. The implication is that his rule will not only be eternal, but it will be characterized by absolute justice and absolute righteousness. He will rule as the sovereign king, but unlike so many kings before him, both he and his kingdom will be defined by true justice, by perfect justice, and by perfect righteousness. That is because he is righteous by nature. He himself is righteous. That's what he goes on to say next. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. The son delights in righteousness. And because he loves righteousness, he also necessarily hates lawlessness. Righteousness, of course, was the definition of Christ's earthly life on this planet. He was perfectly holy. He was unwavering in his commitment to confront lawlessness, particularly in the religious leaders of the day. But the Bible is also very clear that in the future, when Jesus returns to set up his actual rule, it will be a rule and a kingdom characterized by true, perfect righteousness. Listen to a couple of passages from Isaiah that describe this. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Just two chapters later, Isaiah continues along those lines in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. He says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. While the earthly king, that is the contemporary king of Psalm 45, obviously must have been a man that could legitimately be called righteous, his righteousness was obviously imperfect. It only went so far. 
But the Messiah would be the true righteous king. Righteous permeates who he is. And the result, according to Isaiah, is that he makes perfect judgments which produce real justice for all people and the peace and righteousness fill his kingdom. The psalmist says, as we continue in Hebrews, that this love of righteousness and hatred for lawlessness results in something. He says, therefore, verse 9 in the middle, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Now there's some debate about what this oil of gladness refers to, but really that's not the point. The point is is what is meant by the anointing with the oil of gladness. The point is that this righteous divine king who loves righteousness and hates lawlessness is anointed and exalted by God to the highest place. He is the anointed one or the Messiah. But notice something interesting here. Because back in verse 8, the beginning of this quote from Psalm 45, he calls this person God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Then we come to the middle of verse 9, and he says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. What's happening here? We have the, this righteous king called God, but then we have God called God anointing this righteous king. The only explanation is that this is a, an Old Testament reference to what will become clearer in the New Testament of the doctrine of the Trinity, the very nature of God. God the Son is God. God the Father is, is God. They, they are one in, in essence and nature, and yet they are distinct persons. You see it here in the Scripture. Obviously, the Holy Spirit as well. He finishes this quote by saying that this Messiah is anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions. Now in context, remember this was written to a king and so many believe the best way to understand this is that these are other kings, these are these companions, he's, he's anointed above his companions, he's anointed above every other king. The point then is that he is the king of kings, the most exalted. So with that description, how does this connect to the point, the overarching point of our author in Hebrews? Well, the angels, as he's proven in verse 7, are merely created beings who are God's servants. But Jesus is described in the scripture as God himself, who is the righteous king exalted above all other kings. Therefore, Jesus is superior to the angels because they are his servants. They're his servants. If the angels are the servants of God and Jesus is God, then the angels exist to be his servants. But now immediately after this text, the author gives us a second example, a second contrast from the Old Testament that shows that Jesus is not only the righteous divine king, but he's superior because he is the eternal creator. This is a fifth proof of Jesus' superiority over the angels. Jesus is the eternal creator. Now this quote in verse 10, beginning in verse 10, is going to come from Psalm 102. And we have to understand the context of that psalm as well if this is going to make sense. So we don't know who wrote Psalm 102. The author is unlisted. But the situation is very clear. 
Whoever wrote Psalm 102 is a person in deep distress. They're in a great trial of life. They're surrounded by enemies who are, are cursing him and deriding him. And so the psalmist calls upon Yahweh. He calls upon Yahweh for help. And as he does so, he explains why he has such confidence that Yahweh is able to help him. He compares himself and all creation as finite temporal beings to the eternal nature of God. And this is where his hope comes from. It comes from the fact that he knows the nature of God, that God is different than he is. While he is bound in time and space, God is not. And therefore, God is worthy of his hope and trust. Verse 10, now in Hebrews 1, begins with the word and. He's making a second argument, uh, still connected to verse 7. The second reason why Jesus is superior And he quotes specifically from Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27. Now, Psalm 102 actually refers to God more generally. There's nothing in that psalm that necessarily would lead us to say this is specifically about the Messiah. But remember, we've just spent most of chapter 1 arguing that Jesus himself is God, right? And so the author, having proven that fact now applies this truth about God specifically to Jesus himself. You remember in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, he already told us that Jesus is the one who created the world. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is God, he is creator, and so while Psalm 102 makes no specific reference to the Messiah, the attributes attributed to God there are rightly attributed to Christ as well. Now with that in mind, listen to this wonderful description that the author of Hebrews uses to prove his point. Look at verse 10, it says, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Clearly, this is language that harkens back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, this is creation language. In the beginning, we know that all things were created. Even time itself was created. So the fact that Jesus, who is the Lord, referred to here in verse 10, was there in the beginning insinuates that he has no beginning. That's the point. It says, in the beginning, the one who's there in the beginning obviously has no beginning. He is then eternal. He's all-powerful because it was by his own hand, the author says, that he laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are made. But now listen to this comparison that the psalmist makes between the created order and God. Back to our text, verse 10, verse 11 now. They will perish, that is creation, heaven and earth, but you remain And they will become old like a garment, he says. The author reveals that all of creation is going to eventually wear out and perish. And of course, we see the signs of this all around us, don't we? Stars burn out. The surface of the planet continually changes. Uh, Streams cut deeper and deeper into mountain valleys. And certain species of animals go out of existence. They go extinct. In fact, the unbelieving world is terrified by the fact that the earth is being used up. But the Bible here reveals that that's actually in keeping with God's divine plan. 
Not only is the earth and all of creation going to get old, it's going to come to an end at some point and perish. But next, the psalmist explains that the earth is not going to perish of old age or by natural causes, but it's God himself, or in this case, specifically Jesus, who will bring the created order to an end. Look back at the text. He says, And like a mantle... You will roll them up, verse 12, like a garment, they will also be changed. The word mantle just means a robe. So like an old robe that's worn out, you're going to roll it up. It's, it's good for nothing now but to be thrown away. And notice that, that he says specifically, you will roll it up. That is, God is going to determine when it's time for it to come to an end, and he will bring it to an end. But here's the good news. It doesn't describe God as just throwing everything away, just saying, I'm done. Instead, he says, it will be changed. It will be changed. The insinuation is that God's going to do something new. He's going to make a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness really dwells, where all of those descriptions about Christ come true. We'll see that in the millennial kingdom on this earth, but ultimately this earth will be done away with, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth in which he will reign forever. But in context, as amazing as all of that is, that's not the point. The point's not really about that. The point is the contrast between the finite nature of creation that's going to pass away and the eternality of God. That they, they, are, they are totally different because he goes on to say, while all those things will be rolled up and done away with, but you are the same, he says about God. You are are the same, verse 12. So in these simple words, the, the author is going to highlight two unique aspects of God that also apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, when he says you are the same, that is the fact that God is immutable. That means he never changes. He cannot change. It's against God's nature to change. It's not just that God has decided not to change. He cannot change. He is immutable. That is who he is. Who he was is who he is, and who he is is who he will be. That's actually wrapped up in the name that God gives himself, Yahweh. I am who I am. What is he saying? He's saying, I I, I am the immutable one, the eternal one. I am God. I'm unlike any other being because I'm uncreated. And yet creation, as we know, is constantly decaying, constantly changing, constantly uh, moving. Every year I go hunting in November with my dad, and because I only get about five days a year to really focus on that, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the woods that much, and so I choose to maximize my time, and I go to the same places every time, the places I've had success before, to see if there are deer there. I start there, but what's interesting is that even though I've been going to the same spots year after year for, for over a decade, every time I get there initially, because it's been a year, I have to get my bearings, Because things have changed. Trees have fallen. Things are beginning to decay. Trails are in different places. It takes me a while to familiarize myself with very familiar things because this creation is in flux. But in contrast, every day when I wake up, God is just as he was when I went to sleep. He never changes. He is eternal. And and, and what's most important about that is that his nature never changes. That is, his power is never depleted. His holiness never, is, is never less than perfect. His glory never fades. His mercy and grace are never spent. 
and his justice never fails. In fact, his immutability is even wrapped up, as I said before, in this wonderful name, Yahweh, I am who I am. So he's immutable, but he also goes on in this, the end of this psalmist text here to say that God is eternal. Look at the end of verse 12. And your years will not come to an end. While every aspect of creation has an expiration date, Jesus never does. He's existed from eternity past. He will exist into eternity future without end. So how does this marvelous text tie into the overarching purpose of Hebrews? Well, again, in verse 7, the angels are mere created beings. They are servants. But the Lord Jesus Christ is himself God and creator of all things, and he is, in fact, immutable and eternal. The angels are created beings, and they're not even in the same category as the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't even really be compared because we're not talking about two things that are comparable. It's not an apples-to-apples comparison. They don't even enter into the conversation of comparison with the immutable, eternal God. But again, ultimately, the author's chief concern here is not the angels, but the Son. And so I have to ask, what comes into your mind when you think of Jesus? What comes into your mind? You know, the world's always pushing for a lower view of Jesus And because the church, the broader church, has given in to the temptation, unfortunately, of pragmatism, which is the idea that whatever works best to get people in church, let's do that. Because the church has given in to that, that the Jesus of popular evangelicalism is often unrecognizable when compared to the scriptures. It's important for us to understand this morning that Jesus is not your buddy, he's not your pal, he's not the man upstairs. He's not a superstar. He's not simply a great teacher. He's not simply a great historical figure. And he's certainly not a magic genie whose lamp we rub asking for wishes when things aren't going our way. Jesus is the indisputable, undeniable son of God. He's the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, and the eternal creator of all that has ever been or will be. He is one with the Father and the Spirit, possessing all the perfections that are essential to the nature of God. All things have come into being by him, through him, and for his own glory. He sustains all things and reigns in heaven in sovereign control over all things. And if your understanding of Jesus this morning is anything less than that, then, friend, your Jesus is not the Jesus of Scripture. The author of Hebrews wants the readers of this letter and us this morning to come away with one resounding truth, and that is that Jesus is superior to every other thing. Nothing compares to him, and no one compares to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? When we began this message, we talked about the fact that what we believe will ultimately dictate how we live. If you don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus, then you will not live towards Jesus in the way the Bible commands. And as we said earlier, there are inevitable consequences that come with all of our beliefs. 
And the consequences for what we believe about Jesus are of greater importance and significance than anything else. If you don't understand why, let me share with you one final text of Scripture as an illustration of why what you believe about Jesus is of utmost importance. You'll remember the author of Hebrews took us to Psalm 102. And there we saw the truth that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will roll up this created universe and he will change it for another. In the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus reveals to the Apostle John what that new heaven and earth will be like. Let me read it to you. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. You see, the new earth will be glorious beyond what our minds can even fathom. It will be a place in which the presence of God is physical and visible. He will physically be there and his people will be physically there with him. It will be a place in which there's no more sin or suffering or death or crying or pain. All of that will have passed away because Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. And those who live on this new earth will have access to this eternal spring of water, this idea of eternal life that he will give without cost to all who are in his kingdom. And those who are there will be his adopted sons and daughters. But it's important to understand that not everyone will be there. Not everyone will be there. Verse 8, the very next verse explains this sad reality. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What makes the difference between those who experience verses 1 to 7 and those who are part of verse 8. It comes back to what you believe about Jesus and how you respond to him. The Bible says that every single one of us is a sinner who has rebelled against this holy God, who's rebelled against this wonderful Jesus that we've seen in the text. But it also says that this Jesus, though he could have remained with God in, in glory forever, chose at a point in time to come to earth, to take on a human body, 
to live a perfect life and to give that life as a sacrifice on the cross, as a ransom to pay for the sins of all who would place their faith and trust in him. The Bible says if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope, believing him to be who the Bible says he is, then by grace you will be saved. He will extend his mercy and grace to you. Don't you see just how significant your view of Jesus is? It's the difference in verses 1 to 7 and verse 8. It's the difference of living life in this temporal world Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, loving the Lord Jesus Christ, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the difference of living our eternity with him or separated from him forever. And so as we close, there's really just one application I would encourage for all of us this morning. And that is simply this. Evaluate your view of Jesus. Evaluate your view of Jesus. Have your thoughts of Jesus been too low? How much intentional effort have you really given to the study of the person of Christ and meditation upon Christ? Even for those of us who are in Christ, we must be diligent to shepherd our thoughts towards him throughout the day. Make him your meditation. Take one of those many attributes that we've looked at this morning and and, and think on that deeply this week. Think on immutability. Think on his divinity. Think on his righteousness. Think on his role as creator, the fact that he is eternal. Just pick one and meditate upon the richness of Christ this week. Don't ever stop being a student of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've somehow fallen into the trap of thinking that you've exhausted him, then you only reveal that your thoughts of him are still far too low. When the psalmist wrote Psalm 102, he comforted himself by not only relying upon the Lord for strength, but by recounting who the Lord was. And that's what we're to do. He sought comfort in his weakness by comparing his weakness to the the strength of God and the divine nature of God. And so evaluate your view of Jesus specifically in these ways. Evaluate what you believe about him, number one. Evaluate how often you meditate on those truths you believe, number two. And finally, evaluate how those truths currently spur you on to trust and obedience. Are you living in light of those things you claim to believe? May the Lord use his word this morning to make us more like his son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. First in your incarnation and coming, but also in the scriptures so that those of us who didn't have the privilege of being alive at the time when you physically appeared, we see you, we can behold you on the pages of scripture. God, help us never to tire of thinking on these things. They are deep things. They stretch our brains. They are the the richest things for us to dwell on. But God, we also pray that our thoughts of you would not just remain inside our head, but they would affect our speech. They would affect the way we use the resources and gifts that you've given us, that our lives would be conformed to the image and person of Christ, and that we would be dedicated to proclaiming him to others that they might know the glories of Christ and salvation. We thank you for the privilege we've had this morning to feast upon who you are in the scriptures. 
We pray now as we sing, God, that you would be honored and as we leave this place that we would serve you. We ask it in Christ's name.